0: Welcome back to AHP. Thank you for joining me. I do appreciate it for another episode of the show, episode 199. Now, we're crossing the Indian Ocean all the way to Cape Town, South Africa to talk to Peter Milan, a.k.a. Pete Skeet from YouTube. Now, Pete's been making videos probably now for about a couple of of years uh, on all different types of things, from precision rifle shooting to gear, reviews, scopes, reloading, rifle builds, you name it also just recently started posting a lot more and getting involved in hunting which is absolutely fantastic I love seeing hunting from other parts of the world. You know, we have the species we hunt here in Australia, but going over to the Africas to see what they can hunt and shoot over there is absolutely fantastic. And uh, he just made a recent video on hunting a kudu bull, which was absolutely fantastic. Uh, Very riveting. Had me on the edge of my seat. Uh, Very well made. So if you want to check him out, go to Pete Skeet, P-I-E-T, space, S-K-I-E-T. Pete Skeet. Uh, He'll come up on YouTube, subscribe to him. Like all of us guys, help us out on on patreon if you want to help me in particular go to patreon.com forward slash ahp i thank everyone that supports me on the show that joins me on patreon uh gives me a few bucks each month to help me to keep going and to interview people like pete over in south africa i love interviewing people from different regions around the world and i guess guys what we've all got in common we love firearms we love shooting and we love hunting and that's why i love doing this podcast i love hearing all different types of opinions from all different types of people from all the way around the world so in saying that let's get into the show all right peter milan aka pete skeet welcome to the show pleasure to have my actually my first guest from south africa joining me here on ahb what a pleasure
1: Oh, Thanks, Jason. Thanks for having me. I'm super excited. It's it's going to be awesome.
0: Absolutely. Mate, first off, I, I want to find out about yourself, man, where you're from. Tell us your know, age, location. Just tell us a little bit of a history about who's Peter Milan.
1: Okay. So I'm 30 years old. I stay out in the northern suburbs of Cape Town. Uh, I've been shooting for a couple of years. I make YouTube videos. I'm a financial advisor, married, kitty on the way, a lot of info in there. Um, I guess we'll get sort of into more of those things as we go out throughout the show. But, uh, yeah, that's that's pretty much what I am. Born and bred in Cape Town, South Africa, and uh, having a blast.
0: Tell us about, I guess, your history growing up in South Africa. Was your, you know, family into shooting? Was, you, you know, was you, something you grew up with? And if so, just tell us about your upbringing.
1: Well, I grew up on a farm outside of uh, Cape Town in an area called Wellington, And I actually grew up on a wine farm. So uh, it's kind of hunting and shooting is a very big thing in South Africa. We've got a very big gun culture here. And uh, sort of from the age that I can remember, I had a little uh, breakneck air rifle. Like I think a lot of people grew up with those. Um, And we were out and about, like after school, running around in the forest, shooting anything that moved, basically, Um, shooting a, a bunch of empty cans, floating them down in the river, making DIY moving targets, which is. Probably not that environmentally friendly, come to think of it now. <laughs> um, yeah, yeah, yeah. And, uh, yeah, I, I upgraded to a 22. And, uh, yeah, that's sort of how it's how it's gone, gone in from there. Then sort of uh, my dad got sick when I was really young, and uh, I moved and went to stay with my mom. And I sort of didn't shoot for almost 15 years, I would say. And, uh, yeah, then I recently got back into it, and I've absolutely just – gone down this rabbit hole of the precision rifle world and i'm loving it
0: awesome so your was your dad into i said uh, shooting growing up and as if so is that where you got your first taste of i guess shooting firearms growing up in south africa
1: yeah i would say um I i have vivid memories of going hunting with my dad when i was really young and when i say really young this is like six years old uh hunting out in the Karoo, being super cold in the rain falling asleep next to him there's this story where i was we were hunting like sort of a, and uh, it was really cold. I fell asleep next to him. He shot his 30 odd six next to me with no muzzle break or or suppressor on the front. And I didn't even wake up. I was so tired from the whole day of hunting. Um, I didn't hunt myself when I was when I was that young. I just went with, uh, and I, we used to work all our own meat and stuff. And uh, yeah, I sort of lost touch with my dad for, for many years. And uh, it was actually as a result of him that I recently got back into shooting so we'll touch more on that later i guess but yeah very much a, a gun culture here growing up and i'm just like i don't want to say i regret not being involved with it because i don't think i would be where i am now because uh, you know sort of everything happens for a reason but yeah guns are, are very much a part of of the south african upbringing for especially if you grow up on a farm
0: What about uh, other family members? you got any brothers or sisters that took up the the shooting sports or pretty much just you at this stage?
1: Yeah, so I've got an older brother. Um, He's about two years older than me. He also shoots. He doesn't shoot as much as I do. I don't think there's many people in this country that shoot as much as I do, but my, my older brother does shoot. We actually recently went on a hunting trip, and I was able to guide him onto a nice kudu bull, which was probably the highlight of my hunting trip. Like I enjoyed that more than shooting my own kudu bull. Um it's just a, it's a different experience when you're when you're helping somebody else do something spectacular like that. That was really cool. I'm trying to get him into the precision rifle world um, to come shoot matches with me. But my my older brother is a very avid cyclist. Um, and that hobby is obviously super time consuming. So uh, he he's riding all the time and he stays in a different part of the Western Cape. So we can't shoot together. Then I've got a younger baby brother and sister who are twins. And I'm trying to get my little baby brother, Matt. Well, he's not a baby anymore. He's 18 now. But I'm trying to get him to come shoot an NRL 22 match with us. Maybe the the bug will bite him too. Because I think he'd be a natural at it. He's such a little gifted athlete. So, uh, yeah, I think it'll come pretty naturally for him.
0: Absolutely. Now, I know you're married, so I presume you've been with your uh, wife uh, quite a long time now, at least a decent amount of time. Now, does she support your hobby? I know there's a lot of guys here in Australia, you know, they might be, you know, uh, still in the dating scene, such as myself. And, uh, you know, when you get out there and you're actually on a date, especially in those big cities like Cape Town, Sydney, Australia, for an example, as well, and you finally tell someone, hey, listen, you know, I shoot and hunt, sometimes it doesn't go down very well. But on the flip side, too, if you're already in a relationship sometimes that can cause tension too because you know i know guys that you know i've met from work and they said listen can you take me shooting it sounds fun they go home and tell their wife and they're like hell no shit you're not you, you know you're not having a gun in the house what are <laughs> you talking are about dangerous. you
1: know yeah so i must say i take my head off to my wife she's been super supportive throughout this whole journey that i've been on and um uh, actually like when we started dating I wasn't into guns at all like I was still a cyclist because I sort of tried my hand at pro cycling and uh, then I got injured and I had a few surgeries and it was actually after surgery that I was messing around on YouTube and I found a gun channel um, which I'm pretty sure every single one of your listeners would would watch and that's Demolition Ranch and I was like this yep. looks awesome I should buy some guns <laughs> um, and okay. uh, then yeah I uh, I sort of just went full crazy as I do many things in life. And um, the journey's evolved to the point where like, I used to wear a suit and tie to work every day. And now I walk around in jeans and a pair of tackies. And I I play with guns all day. Um, And she's been amazing with that. Um, She doesn't um, give me too much. She actually gives me no shit almost with regards to spending a lot of time reloading. I travel a lot. Uh, Last month I was in three different countries for shooting um, and she really doesn't give me any flack for, for doing that. So she's been re- really supportive, and uh, I think it's largely due because she can see that it makes me happy, you know. Um, it doesn't make us a lot of money at this point in time, but I'm doing what I love, and life's too short to be stuck in an office job sort of doing what you what you don't like, and, and she's been amazing throughout that. So yeah, my wife's, my wife's incredible with regard to shooting my hobby or supporting my hobby. Um, not so much when I spend the entire week and reloading for a match coming up. But, yeah, we're we're working on that.
0: (laughs) What about your friends now? They've probably seen you get into shooting. You're really enjoying it. Maybe they've seen some of your videos. Have you been able to get some of your friends into shooting or people that may recognize you somewhere and say, hey, I've I've thought about I wanted to get into shooting, so how do I go about it? And Have you seen any of that sort of thing going on?
1: Absolutely. So um, quite a few of my friends have actually purchased handguns since I started shooting. Um, to sort of try and and get involved with the IPSC-style shooting. I don't know if you guys are familiar with IPSC. Yep, absolutely, yep. Yeah, so a few of my friends have purchased some handguns. I'm trying to get them into the rifle space, uh, and we we can chat about this a bit later, but in South Africa, it's not the easiest thing to do. It's not too difficult, but it just takes a little bit of time. Um, But yeah, sort of throughout my journey, I have influenced a lot of people, not people that I necessarily know, but I do know a lot of people, a lot of my subscribers have commented and said they've gotten rifles and they're getting into the sport as a result of the content that I've been putting out. And that's been pretty awesome to see. And that sort of makes the slaving away at the computer editing a cool video absolutely worth it when you can see you're making a positive influence on, on somebody else and they're getting into a sport which you love. And the beautiful thing about that is the more people we can get into the sport, the bigger the talent pool we'll get and the better we all have to shoot to sort of compete with that level. And I think that's just, that's the, way to progress the
0: sport without a doubt. Absolutely. What sort of shooting disciplines do you get into? Uh, yeah, pistols, you were just talking about that actually as well. Rifle, you know, I just noticed just recently, you just started getting into the hunting as well. I really enjoyed that long video uh, you made uh, where you shot the big kudu ball. That was good. i tell you what was good about that was the music. You literally had me on the edge of my seat for like, I'm like, is he going to shoot it? What's he going to do? <laughs> you know, It was awesome. So what, what, what do you partake in? What sort of uh, shooting other than obviously rifles?
1: So initially, when I started out, I, I purchased a handgun had to get into IPSC style shooting, and the the way the process works in South Africa, it's about a nine month month process from the start of you know deciding okay I want to get into firearms till realistically you could actually have your first firearm in your hand. So I purchased a handgun to get into IPSC shooting. I got the handgun, did a few of the shoots. I I wasn't great at it to be honest because it's a very difficult skill to learn and i'm sort of i just rush things and uh not that precision rifle is easy i just i yeah it's sort of uh the rifle stuff grabbed me more and as a result of that i've sort of parked all my other guns i built up super cool shotgun um i've got a primped out ar-15 like top end competition spec and i never shoot them because i'm fascinated with bolt action rifles and shooting long distance and sort of precision rifle style events. And that just, it's consuming. And for me, I want to be the best competitor in South Africa. And I don't think that I can, I can do that if I've spread myself too thinly. So I'm trying to focus on that. And yeah, it it's basically takes all my time. So I don't really have time to shoot my other guns. When I do, I basically just go out and I shoot them for fun. It's no competition, competition or anything like that. Then with regards to hunting, I do quite a bit of wing shooting with my older brother. I really enjoy that, especially this time of the year because we've just had all our crops planted. So the farmers are very willing to let you onto their property just to come take, sort of try and control the millions of birds eating, eating up the seeds. And um, hunting-wise, yeah, I recently got into hunting as an adult since I started shooting, I would say, professionally basically or seriously. Um, and I I knew I was going to get into hunting since I started shooting vault action rifles competitively, but I wanted to be able to make sure I, I make the best possible shot that I can. So it basically took me two and a half years of shooting competitively. And then I was like, okay, I'm ready to go hunting now. I kind of know what my bullet's going to do. I know what the rifle's going to do. I know sort of where my limits are. And I had a blast hunting. Um, and to the point where I came back and I told my wife, like, I might, actually like stop the competition stuff and do more hunting content because I enjoyed that so much more. So, uh, yeah, it's been a, it's been a phenomenal journey the last two, two to three years. Yeah. The Australian hunting podcast is the only hunting shooting and fishing podcast radio show in Australia with over 40,000 downloads per month. You are sure to find some information that can help you. If you love hunting, shooting, fishing, and a little bit of politics, the Australian Hunting Podcast has you covered. To listen, check us out on iTunes and visit australianhuntingpodcast.com.au.
0: You'd be surprised how many people you know get into it on the shooting side and even that was me to a certain degree now i think precision rifle shooting is is something a little bit different again because you're moving around um, you know different targets at different distances so i can imagine that's fun too but a lot of people when they come and speak to me they say well yeah I'm, I'm just shooting targets at 100 meters and 150 meters like they just get bored really quickly and then they start taking up hunting and they just become hooked i mean how awesome is hunting
1: Mhm, It's amazing. Like, so I, my heart rate goes up when we're shooting competitions because we're sort of under time pressure to engage multiple targets from multiple positions. But I'll tell you what, when that big kudu bull stepped out behind that bush, my heart rate went through the roof. Yeah, So it's a different experience because those things are so difficult to hunt. So they actually call them the gray ghosts because they just, they have this ability, even though they're massive, they just disappear. Um, and we actually sat on that group of cows, as you would have seen in the video, we sat on them for about half an hour with no sign of a big bull. And we were just glassing through the, I was lying behind my rifle in case he stepped out that I would be ready to take a shot. Um, and then all of a sudden I just saw these, this massive set of horns coming out of behind this bush. And uh, even the, the professional hunter, the PH, my friend who was standing behind me, he even, cause he, he was recording through the phone scope and he was going like, "Dude, my heart's through the roof," and I'm like, "Yeah, man, I have to shoot now," <laughs> and I'm feeling <laughs> the same way. So, uh, yeah, it was it was a very special um, occasion, and I'm glad you enjoyed the video. and uh, And uh, if if the music did its job, then and that means the edit yeah. the edit is well done. And uh, that's actually something that people don't understand with editing videos. Like one of the hardest parts about putting together a quality video is choosing the right music. And uh, you know, I spend a ton of time looking for the exact right music and then to line up the clips with the right points in the music to set the mood. It's, I feel that just adds so much to the experience. And and my goal when I make a video like that is I want somebody to feel like they're there with me. Um, And then that's not always the easiest thing to do.
0: I I felt sorry for your guide that was helping you out. must've been a friend of yours or the guide and he couldn't work out the camera and he was struggling to to get it on camera and press the record button. It always happens at the most inopportune time, doesn't it?
1: Yeah, exactly. Like there was this one shot where I shot a blaze at 380 meters, like the most absolutely perfect shot. Um, and so the camera was already rolling on the phone scope and he thought he was pushing record, but he actually stopped the recording. And he actually did that twice during the hunt. <laughs> Don't you um, hate that? Yeah, it it was like sort of bittersweet cause like now you've like shot this beautiful animal and then you go like, I'm obviously here not to just hunt. I want to capture it on the camera and hunting's difficult enough, but to coordinate everything and have cameras set up and things like that's a whole different level. And that was sort of like, that was my first hunting experience. And I had to sort of juggle all these elements. But I think overall, we still did well. And we were able to capture the experience pretty well and and translate that to the viewer. So I'm super pumped as to how that video came out.
0: Yeah, man, absolutely. Tell us about what sparked your interest in starting a, a YouTube channel anyway. What what value did you see in doing that?
1: I'm, I'm a very bubbly person. And uh, I felt that, you know, I've spent so much money and I've spent so much time investing into the sport to up my to up my skill i guess and my ability and i've made so many mistakes along the way jason and i and i wish that i could have because there's a bunch of content on the internet but I, I feel that the market is so big like if you don't know somebody's channel um it's really difficult like you could miss out on something and i just thought like if i can somehow add more value to the community by sharing little things that that i've learned along the way helping people save a buck by maybe buying the right thing the first time around and not having to sell an item at a, at a loss and then rebuy something because you know I made those kind of mistakes um, and I I've seen that the, the value at least in the comments you know from people that have that have seen the value in what I'm doing um, has been worth it for me and then on the other senses I'm sponsored by quite a few companies and it's also a nice way for me to give back to those sponsorships because you know if they're sponsoring me with an optic, for example, like from Vortex side, um, if there's 40 people at a match, that's only 40 people that's seeing the optic that I'm using at that match. But if I'm putting my content on YouTube and 50,000 people a month are watching those videos, I mean, that's a whole lot more exposure for them. And that's kind of why I went into this journey. Um, but for the most part, it was to give back to the community and um, just being creative. You know, it's, it's pretty cool to make some creative videos, even though it, it It adds so much more to the workload and it really doesn't make a difference in how much views it gets, which is quite funny sometimes. Like you'll do like a a selfie video on your camera on your phone and it would just get just as many videos as a video you'd spend 10 hours editing. So that's a little bit bit frustrating sometimes, but I guess that's par for the course, you know?
0: It's amazing when you see like literally people putting so much awesome content it's not not just about shooting but other things you know really important content on YouTube and sometimes you think why isn't this getting the views but then you know someone will put up something completely stupid that nothing really cares about it but it gets millions of views I don't understand sometimes the human psyche when people are putting up really good content and people put up something stupid I guess it's funny and then it gets millions of views I'm like what's wrong with people these days
1: (laughs) I was actually having that conversation with my wife last night. I was, you know, like YouTube suggests the video, and I was watching the video and going like, okay, this is pretty, you know, generic. It's a guy standing in his room with no real fancy background, anything. And so I go onto his channel. He's got 21 million subscribers. And I'm going like, how... How does the internet work? I need to figure this out because um, I'm I'm coming up on five thousand now, and it's taken me a year and a half almost to get from zero to five thousand, um, and uh, it's a, it's been a graph, dude. Uh, yeah. But I'm enjoying the process. Um, a, a lot of times, I think people people are guilty of wanting to fast forward the hard work and just get to sort of the end result. And I don't think there's a way to do that with YouTube. And I've sort of resisted making clickbaity type videos to, to inflate views. I've just been focused on putting out real content um, and having it grow organically.
0: What are your plans, I guess, over the next, say, two to three years? What do you want to achieve and what do you want to see it develop into?
1: So kind of my first goal now, I'm a very goal oriented person. So my first goal is to get to 10,000. Um, and I think, We're halfway there now. We'll probably hit 5,000 at the end of next week, I guess. And then I want to get to to 10,000. And then I guess the next push is to get to 100,000 and get my silver play button. That's kind of the goal. Um, And I've got a few friends that are well on their way to doing that. My one friend, we've spoken about this before the podcast started. My one friend, Matt Dabber, is almost at 300,000 now. Um, So the feedback I'm getting from those guys are really cool. And some other YouTubers that have reached out to me and saying I'm on the right track. And apparently it takes just as long to get from zero to 10,000 as it does from getting from 10,000 to a hundred thousand. But that can obviously all change with one viral video, you know? So uh, it's a, the internet's a very interesting thing when it comes to stuff like that. But I guess to summarize my goal, it would be to turn this into a, a platform when I, where I can on a regular basis provide quality content for, for my listeners and to sort of pursue this as a full-time job. I, or, I don't want to use the term job because we always use the abbreviation just over broke. Um, I want to turn this into a business while keeping the passion for it.
0: It's interesting that, you know, and tell people why it's important for people to support YouTubers, podcasters like myself, YouTubers like yourself with quality content. I know we're in the day and age of the internet where, you know, everything is free, but, you know, I've really seen way too many people stop making content because there's just no support. But then on the flip side, and you actually brought it up just a little bit earlier when you might have, say, a scope manufacturer supporting you and then you get comments, might say something along the line lines of well he's you know sold out to swarovski or vortex or whatever it may be but i mean people can't honestly expect us to to we're not asking to make a million dollars a year but just you know make it into something that supports what we're doing and continues with the current quality content
1: yeah you're right um with regards to to sort of addressing your first question worth supporting the channels um so we both run a patreon group where we provide additional content for our listeners. Um. so what I'm doing on that front just to add more value to that is doing sort of stage debriefs where I take a video clip of myself or a video clip of somebody who's given me permission. And I I basically just give sort of commentary on that as to how to to handle that specific scenario a little bit better. Then with regards to supporting on a monetary basis, I think the biggest thing for a YouTuber, podcaster or whatever content creator is the opportunity cost of creating content, you know when i sit down to to make a video there's many things that go into that but the biggest item that we're losing is time um and it's time you're taking away from a day job it's time you're taking away from your family and at the end of the day people i guess people stop creating content because the the return on investment is not worth the time anymore um so uh yeah that's sort of where i am on that regard and then obviously you can get to to the point where we're it's costing us money to produce content right um, I'm going out, we're driving out to shoot, we're shooting out ammunition, it's barrel life, it's petrol, it's consumables. And uh, then we can get to the, even the other side of the, the question, it's gear to produce high quality production value content. I have to purchase a camera, you have to keep upgrading that. You've got studio lighting, you need microphones, you need editing software, which costs a fortune, you need a proper computer to put together video content. So there's a lot of expenses going into this, and every little bit of support we get from our audience makes it worth our wa- or more worth our while to keep producing high-quality content.
0: Renowned for their strength, reliability, and attention to detail, Moroku shotguns are the perfect example of what a sporting shotgun should be. Moroku have been producing quality products for over a century and sold in Australia since 1963. Each Moroku shotgun is crafted with precision, from the MK Trap and sporting models to the all-round best-selling field shotgun, the MK70. Visit morokushotguns.com.au for more details and stockists. Absolutely. I've been saying this to a lot of people for a long time, and I just hate when I see really good channels and you know some of them i'm still you know friends with them on sort of instagram and i have a chat with them sometimes and say hey man how's the the content going how's the videos going and it's really sad when they sort of come back and say mate it's not really worth it anymore i'd rather just go hunting shooting and fishing and just enjoy what i'm doing instead of having to lug around a camera film edit it's, it's just not worth it to them which is sad because you know a lot of people saying, hey where's your content but yeah, you know, they, they 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 weren't the ones that were supporting. They like the free content, but they're not supporting the person. Then they're wondering where the content's gone.
1: For sure. Um, and what you also got to factor in, recording and and doing stuff like that while you're on an activity that's meant to be fun does turn it into work to a certain extent. Like, uh, and this is this is going to sound crazy to people, but like sometimes, like on a Tuesday morning this week, I went shooting. But to me, that's that's almost not going shooting anymore. It's become a job because my audience is expecting weekly content from me. Um, and I got to take the time out of and the track from my day job to go do that. And it doesn't actually make me money at this point. Um, I enjoy doing that, but at some point you kind of like we're starting a family now. And at some point I'm going to have to make that decision. So uh, hopefully this my store and everything can can sustain that. But yeah, any bit of support we get from from the people that love the content Does help a lot. And I mean, it's especially, I don't know what your sort of Patreon rates is, but mine is super reasonable. And the way I've done that is I've made it really reasonable with, you know, $5 a month because I'd rather scale it and and have more people supporting me um, with a small little contribution every month than than make it a big contribution for for a few people to share.
0: I mean, in my opinion, anyone can afford you know, $5 a month for quality content. I just, I don't, you know, and people ask me, well, they try and put it on me sometimes. So, well, what are you doing? I say, man, I support five people on patreon you know like in I'm, I'm a patreon person creating content myself i mean i'm subscribed i just subscribed to you last night i'm i think i'm subscribed to you were talking about before matt dubber i'm subscribed to one guy in the u.s because i really like his content uh two youtubers here in australia that uh, shoot firearms and and then i'm also another guy in america that makes sort of political content which is separated from shooting but you know i want to support them because they make friggin' good content why not you know
1: Exactly. Well, if you think about it, it's like you can't get Netflix for free, right? You've got to pay them. And if you're liking the content we're putting out, I mean, it's a fraction of what your Netflix subscription is, but hey, we're, we're providing content. And if you like it, support it, because then we can keep providing the content going forward.
0: Absolutely. Mate, tell us about, uh, obviously, Australia is a bit of a basket case in regards to firearms laws, what we can and can't own. So let's, just give us a quick run around, just some general rules about firearms ownership in South Africa. Uh, I know you were talking a little bit earlier, I wrote down, takes about nine months for, for handguns. Is that exactly the same in regards to rifles as well? Do you have to have a license, et cetera?
1: Yeah. So basically, let me let me chat you through the process sort of from start to finish. So let's assume you don't have any firearms at the moment and you decide sort of in the boat that I was, I wanna get into firearms now. So there's, I quite like the system. We have actually a lot of people complain about our system we have here, but I do think there's merit in the system. So essentially what you're gonna do first is you gotta write a test, a proficiency test, um, and to show that you know how firearms operate, um, how sort of the mechanisms work and the safety things, the, all the firearm safety rules that are beaten to death, but they work. Um, And then you actually have to go out and shoot, sort of like passing your driver's license to a certain extent. Um, Then once you've done all those requirements, you submit a thing to our police, uh, which is called a competency certificate application. They then run background checks on you. And this whole process can take about five months to do. Um, And then after you've been declared competent to to, um, purchase a firearm, then you can, then go back and actually apply for your firearm license. Then you can only, at that point, you can only purchase a firearm. So before that, you can't actually purchase a firearm. You have to wait to have your competency. Now, having said that, you only need to do the competency every 10 years. So once you have one competency, you can do them in different categories. So I recommend to any South African listeners, if you want to get into firearms, just pay that it's double the fee of doing let's say for example you wanted to do handguns it would be hundred australian dollars to do your competency for handguns but if you wanted to do your competency for hand shotguns rifles uh, semi-automatic rifles semi-automatic shotguns there would be 200 dollars for all of them so just do them all because then whatever reason if your friend says we're going on a wing shooting thing and you need a shotgun you don't have to go through that process again so i would just recommend like rip the band-aid off, get it all done um then so once you have that in place you can go purchase your firearm hand a new application then that sort of goes through the whole criminal records thing again and that process can take about another four to five months before you can physically have your firearm and with regards to what we can get you can pretty much get anything except fully automatic guns here um like i'm sitting down with my rifle in front of me at the moment and uh just bolt action. As I said, I'm sort of obsessed with bolt action. I think I've got 13 bolt actions at the moment. Uh, I need to trim that number down a little bit because my safe <laughs> is, is becoming a, a game of Jenga. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> so, uh, but yeah, I've, I've got semi-automatic shotguns. I've got semi-automatic rifles, pistols. Um, yeah. And uh, as far as caliber limitations, we can get up to any, we can get up to a 50 cal. Um, so there's not much on that front. And I, the system is clunky, But I do feel that it's a good system the way it's run. Uh, Maybe the administration side of things is not run great. Like everything's still done with paper. Like we could move it to a paperless system and have that whole process completed in a month. I don't see why we need to be dealing with stacks of papers anymore and then things get lost. And then, you know, it delays the process by another four months. So like my AR-15, for example, it took a year just for the license application because they lost one piece of paper and they never communicated with me that they'd lost the one piece of paper. And I had to phone and phone and eventually I spoke to a competent person who worked there and they were like, oh, yeah, we need this. I emailed it to them and within a day it was approved. So that that
0: was a little bit frustrating. It's crazy because – I. I think people in Australia, we had a massacre in 1996, a lot of people died, that's when they banned semi-automatic firearms, which is a, you know, a real shame, but you know, we would be happy to, to jump through the hoops, I think. I mean, some people wouldn't be, but at the moment, we don't have it, so if it meant jumping through the hoops on a competency system, I think Australians would be happy with that. So, what I'm thinking I might do, I might change my uh, podcast name to the South African Hunting Podcast, and I might move over to South <laughs> Africa, because it seems the laws are a lot better over there than they are here yeah
1: so i i'm obviously painting sort of my experience of that i know there's been people that have had nightmares trying to get their firearms approved but i think that's sort of that's just how you approach it so when i apply for a firearm i give them so much information that there's no reason for them possibly to deny my application so tomorrow morning actually i'm going to the police and i'm handing in five applications to get five new rifles Um, as I said, my safe is a Jenga game. (laughs) Yeah. So, um, and I basically, it's like a, it's like a thesis almost when you, when you hand this in, it's like a giant stack of papers with everything, motivation, special letters from my doctors to say, I'm sane in the head, you know, all those kind of things. Um, so I absolutely go completely overboard with this, but I've never had a problem dealing with the police with, with that regard. So I'm super, super excited to get some more rifles in the safe and and produce some more content of those.
0: The new Zeiss Conquest V4 line of high-performance rifle scopes combines tried-and-true Zeiss optics with a rugged and functional design, providing high-definition glass, enhanced with T-star and low-to-tech protective lens coatings produces 90% to the eye-light transmission. This means excellent low-light performance and resolution across the entire magnification range. Zeiss Conquest V4 rifle scopes were designed as a lightweight, high-performance scope for demanding hunting and shooting applications. Visit Visit to find your local dealer. Zeiss. We make it visible. Two supplementary questions, I guess, going on from that: Is that. The first one, is there any, like when you've got an AR-15 for an example or other types of semi-automatic firearms, is there any magazine limits? And secondly, in Australia, we have to store our firearms in like a gun safe. It's mandatory under the legislation. Do you have mandatory uh, safe storage requirements of a safe or no? Nothing like that.
1: Absolutely. Yeah. Safe is a must have. In fact, when you do the application forms, I include multiple pictures of my safes. I include physical pictures of how it's mounted to the wall to show it's got to be approved by the South African Bureau of Standards, like the manufacturer of the safe. Um, Yeah. So it's definitely a requirement. So what I've done now recently, I've had a custom safe built and this one is so heavy that it's the legislation allows me to just sort of put it down because there's no way you can move this thing without a crane. So uh, I'm I'm yet to do the video on that one but it's beautiful. The magazine size for for AR-15s. No, you can you can have anything. I've got a 40-round Pmag for my AR. You can get the big mag pulled drum mags. You can go you can go bonkers. You what if, if you can if you can buy it One problem here is buying things. Um, It's not necessarily because there's no stock, you know, because everything's made in America. So they'd import like 10 drum mags a year. So good luck finding one. And to import those from America is quite difficult because obviously then you're dealing with ITAR regulations and all of those funny export laws getting stuff out of america so what guys generally do is they they have a friend that goes to america and he'll just fly back with like a drum mag or something like that but i mean i i see no point in having a 50 round drum mag for your ar-15 might be a bit <laughs> what heavy. are you gonna do with that <laughs> yeah it um, might be a bit heavy and if you're shooting matches and stuff like that i mean yeah you a 30 round mag is is going to be plenty for shooting most stages so uh yeah just put a few on those on 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 your belt and you're good to go.
0: One more question about I guess the laws before moving on. Now same everything's banned pretty much in Australia, so we can't we can't own suppressors either. Um, you know because they think everyone's going to turn into a Hollywood sniper. So is the process very similar around suppressor ownership or is that just an off the shelf purchase? So
1: basically the hardest part for a South African trying to buy a suppressor is figuring out what thread count he's got on the front of his muzzle um that's the most (laughs) common question i get from guys yeah so because they don't they don't know right um so by uh, getting a suppressor is as easy as walking into a store and finding one that matches the thread on your rifle and you can leave the same day with it. no special permits nothing so (laughs) what you're saying is they're completely illegal it's not like America where you can apply to get a tax stamp and get eventually get one
0: yeah you can if you're like a a contract shooter for an example like you've got a business say you live in like a rural area and you actually have a a provable business you've got like business statements you've got uh, contracts you've got you know written verified contracts you can but like I said if if you really don't have that uh, you can't really get one I mean we also got one called a primary producer so example if You own a farm, uh, you can apply under the primary producer status and you may be able to get one, but they will try everything they can to basically stop you from having it. Every excuse, why don't you try this? Why don't you have a smaller caliber rifle so it's not as loud? Uh, They'll try everything they can. So for about 99.9% of people, you can't really own one. And if you do, they make it extremely difficult. So uh, it's just crazy here, man. Like I think I'm going to move to South Africa, Pete, I'm telling you. (laughs) (laughs)
1: And and what's the reasoning behind that, Jason? Um, Is it, with regards to
0: it it. let let me tell you one thing you'll probably laugh at this too let me tell you one funny thing what's not funny we just had a a because we can't own certain types of firearms i think you'll find this totally crazy but we've got this shotgun that just came into australia called the berica shotgun now it's a basically made overseas it's like a straight pull shotgun so basically it's definitely not trying to get around the current laws but it is a system and 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 a shotgun that allows you to have a different type of mechanism and you can purchased them here so they were on sale for about uh, a couple of months uh, the first 50 sold out then all of a sudden at the border so border force said whoa whoa hang on these things look like an AR-15. Well, that's evil. So basically they they ban them from import and luckily this time, which is the only time in history that the Border Force has ever done it, they've given the importer the approval to to change the lower and to redesign the lower so it can actually come into the country. But normally they're like, sorry, this is not coming in. We don't care what you do to it, how you change it. It's now banned and it's not coming into the country. And this comes under in Australia which you're going to find totally crazy, called appearance law. So if you had, say, uh, even though we can have MDT chassis and all these types of things, if a firearm, even if it's a bolt action, looks like an AR-15, therefore it is an AR-15 and they ban it based on what they call an appearance law. Crazy, huh? That's the
1: most ridiculous thing I've ever heard. Yep. (laughs) So it looks dangerous, therefore it is
0: dangerous. Yeah, I mean, (laughs) hey, don't laugh. This is what I'm living in.
1: You know?
0: Holy only smoke yeah. That's- Crazy, yeah. It's and so many guns have been banned. I mean, we had an issue a couple of years ago. Another sh- uh, shotgun that came in. It's called an Adler, Turkish-made. Um, basically, it's a a, a new design lever-action shotgun. So the importer made a video about it. All the anti-gunners went totally crazy about it. Oh, this is a game changer. Their new terminology now is rapid fire. So everything is rapid fire. Uh, and they basically banned. They basically banned the seven-shot Adler shotgun. And and, but they allow the five shot, and they made this big song and dance about the whole thing. And I'm like, really? For just two shots from a seven wow. round to a, a, a fi- seven rounds to five rounds? I mean, it's crazy. I mean, if you're pointing, if someone's pointing a gun at someone, no one cares what it looks like. They're not saying, "Well, shit, hang on, mate, that looks like an AR-15." I'm twice as scared now. Like appearance laws, it's just insane, man. It's insane.
1: That. BS. Now, what are, what are the rules with regards to handguns? Uh, Can you guys own handguns? Are you allowed to carry them? Um,
0: definitely nothing uh, years ago before 1996 you could probably self-defense I guess wasn't as issue I mean it's not a genuine reason to own a firearm these days if you get a license so definitely no self-defense definitely no concealed carry the, the weird thing about it was in 1996 uh, they didn't ban semi-automatic pistols so you can still own them which is a little bit similar to what you guys go through over there so basically you're on probation for six months uh, so basically you go down to the club you participate in shooting activities uh, at the sixth month point and i'll give you something that's completely ridiculous as well at the sixth month point between six and twelve months you can actually own two pistols now check this out right you can either own two centerfire pistols or two rimfire pistols but not a centerfire and a rimfire. I mean, no one even knows why. Like, it's just, to- yeah, like, it's ridiculous. You know, you can't own, you can only is, own one of the same that's type. That's crazy. So two 9 mils or two twenty twos, for an example, or a, a 9 mil and a 357, totally fine. But you can't have a 22 rimfire and a 9 mil Beretta, for an example. I mean, this is the crap we have to deal with in this country at the moment.
1: Wow. That's very interesting. And I wonder why like, that seems so backwards.
0: Yeah. I mean, they're doing it in New Zealand now a little bit after the New Zealand shooting um, of the mosque in New Zealand. You know, yeah. they've, lost yeah, their, yeah. they've lost their semi-autos and, you know, at least their semi-automatic long rifles.
1: People don't understand that by banning guns, like this, I guess, is going to go down a political route a little bit. But banning guns does not solve that
0: problem. I know, man. We've been fighting this for well, basically since 1996. I mean, we've even got a couple of pro-shooting political parties Pete that are basically representing shooters in parliament you know um you know some good some bad some you know are a bit better than others you might say like some of them you know are starting to you know because it's been so long since 1996 and our mass shooting that they're starting to believe some of this stuff as well which is disappointing um when when they should be on the front foot fighting for our rights but anyway that's a whole different kettle of fish I thought you might have been very um uh, laughing about the appearance laws like if it looks like an AR even if it's a bold action it's a they saying well it is an AR That that's how it is I'm like this is crazy
1: wow so I guess like I'm sitting with my MDT chassis in front of me and one of the channels I watch quite a bit is Mark and Sam after work um, which is obviously a big a big channel for you guys um, and he I know they've got some MDT chassis over there so that sort of looks like an AR I guess
0: yeah it, it all depends on what it looks like. That's some. Sometimes you look at a firearm. I mean, we, for an example, I'll give you another example. I'm from New South Wales, so from Sydney, and uh, the Ruger Precision, for an example, 6.5 or 308. You can own them in Queensland, which is the you know the state north of, of New South Wales, but I can't own them in New South Wales because of the the stock. The stock is collapsible, so in New South Wales, I can't own a collapsible stock, and that they don't come with any other option in regards to that. So. Therefore, in New South Wales, that's another firearm that I can't own. But if I go across the border, I can own one up there, no problem.
1: (laughs) What's that state in America where they have the same? It's Florida with the terrible gun laws, or is it California?
0: California, yeah, Um, California,
1: yeah so you guys are like the california of the rest of the world <laughs>
0: <Don't>, i guess <laughs> don't even uh, i'm sorry I'm to you. hear that oh, no. Look, I, I said they give me a visa in south africa it might be a great place to uh i i'd be willing to wait the 12 months i mean you know if that was the system over here like if we had a system of let's say for the first two years you can only own bolt action rifles then on the third year you can buy one semi-auto on the fourth year you can buy this on the fifth year we extend it to two rifles then anything beyond say five or six years you've you know you've been deemed to be a good safe honest person like i don't see the problem but you know we've just got zero common sense here man zero common sense
1: so part of our system actually so i've got something called a dedicated sports shooter so it's a it's an additional qualification that you need to do um and i need to prove every year that i'm using my rifles for the intention that i applied for them so you have to submit these things called activity reports um and uh, yeah so basically the police look and they see okay you are shooting competitions therefore you can keep your firearms and and i have to do that Every twelve-month cycle,
0: we have a similar thing here. Like you basically have to have a genuine reason, which is basically like uh, be a member of a club. Uh, and you have in New South Wales, where I live, you basically have to do you know so many shoots per year. But we don't report that back. The organisation or the gun range or the um, you know club that you're a part of, they normally report back to the firearms registry. So you know firearms are registered here. We have the police that manage firearms registration of good law people but as soon as you start talking about criminals nobody knows what's going on you know like oh we can't really control them so don't worry about them we're just worried about the good honest people which is again ridiculous but anyway we'll move on mate because well let's get excited about tell us before we get into the precision stuff i want to find out what species i can hunt in south africa because i know you were just talking about wing shooting now i love wing shooting man that's my favorite thing duck shooting which in my state is banned but if i go south uh, to victoria i can still partake in duck hunting activities. So tell us what you can uh, hunt in South Africa.
1: Yeah, so basically with regards to hunting species in South Africa, we're really spoiled here. Like we've got the kudu, which is probably, I would say, one of the most iconic things to hunt in South Africa. Like if you can shoot a big kudu bull, first of all, it's really difficult to get close to them because they're super skittish. Um, then, So kudu, eland which is a massive animal. I don't know if you've seen pictures of them, but they can, they can get pretty big. Um, We've got Blesbach, which is really common. We've got Impala. We've got the Sable, which has those unique horns that sort of sweep back like that. They're beautiful, but they're super expensive to hunt. And then obviously you can, that's just naming a few. The Gemsbach or the Oryx, as it's also known, is is really nice to hunt. And they're also super tasty for making Bultong, which is like beef jerky, if you've got American listeners, but way better. Um, and then you can sort of go into the dangerous game stuff. You can shoot buffaloes, which I, I would classify as dangerous game. You could do the lion stuff, but the, I'm not really into that kind of stuff. And then giraffes, usually they shoot out the mature bulls because they just kill the babies. Uh, elephants, all of the, you can basically shoot. You're you're pretty much spoiled for choice. If, you, if you've seen it in a Lion King, you can probably shoot it here. <laughs>
0: it's interesting because i support listen all types of hunting people say that whilst the lion stuff probably is just not my cup of tea personally like i don't have a problem at all with people going out there and you know if they've got the money and it's a mature animal and it's going back to conservation i don't see any problem with that whatsoever i think it's fantastic actually
1: yeah i when i say like i'm not into that 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 means me personally i'm not against it i absolutely understand that hunting is conservation because that amount of money that a wealthy person is paying to go shoot a lion or shoot a big giraffe, that sustains that community for for a year. It provides employment, it provides protection, food, veterinary services for all the other animals in that area. So I'm absolutely, it just, it's not something that appeals to me personally. Like I've got no desire to go shoot a lion. If that answers the question.
0: Yeah. Yeah. no, Fantastic. What about South African government? And what about the people of South Africa? Is there a general acceptance of hunting and shooting activities in South Africa?
1: I would say so. Yes. Hunting is a very, very popular thing here, especially this time of the year. I would say, even though we don't have hunting season per se, um this is sort of the hunting season i guess or the time which most people end up taking time off from work and going on hunting holidays like most of my friends have gone hunting in the last month and a bit i would say that the general consensus is hunting is is a popular thing here and i think i mean obviously oh by the way with regards to to what you can hunt i didn't name the springbok which is i guess the animal which south africans uh which australians would would recognize the best because we play rugby against each other all the time and we're obviously known as the as the Springboks. And um yeah by the way, Rugby World Cup coming up. Uh, I don't know if you're into those Australians into that, not very good but, uh, at
0: the moment. That's the problem. They're not very good. <laughs> they used to be <laughs>
1: Yeah, that is yeah, that is the problem. Um so with regards to the to the government sh- supporting shooting I don't know actually how to answer that question because like some people feel like they make it difficult for us to get firearms. I personally feel those are the hoops we need to jump through. There's no way to change it. So uh, just do it Um, and stop complaining about it because it's not really going to change it that much. And it's not like they're making it impossible for us to do it. They're just saying, these are the criteria if you want to do X, Y, and Z. And I just basically tick those boxes. Recently we did have a bit of a thing with them where they – they just decided point blank that we can't change our barrels on our guns anymore. Now that I have a little bit of a problem with because that was basically unconstitutional what they went to do and just this, sort of decided to introduce this new thing where they'll decline all the applications to change barrels on firearms. But we did get that overturned pretty quickly, actually. So we've got a few people that are super um, heavy fighting for the gun rights of South African gun owners, and they basically don't take any nonsense. So as soon as there's something dodgy going on, they take the police to court almost the same week, um, wow. and they get they get working on that. Yeah, they're they're pretty good. I must say, um, I'm we're super fortunate to have a bunch of people like that fighting for our rights.
0: I was say you might have to send them over here, mate. Yeah, <laughs> advocate on our behalf.
1: <laughs> exactly, and I, I guess that sort of almost goes back to the content creation side of things, right? For, so we have organisations where we contribute to support that organization that fights for our rights. Um, And that allows them to go and go to court and basically do this fight on, on the behalf of the South African gun owner. Um, and then that's pretty cool to see the country sort of back back organisations like that.
0: Getting back to – I always used to wonder when I used to watch the rugby union like you know, a couple of years ago, and I used to watch the South Africans, and I, we've got a term over here. Now, I'm not sure if this is going to make sense, but I'd look at those South African players and i go, that guy looks like a brick shithouse, which means the guy's massive. Yeah. Right? The guy's huge. He's got a neck the size of my legs. And you know, w- when he's in the ruck and that, I'm like – these guys are massive dude. What do they put in the water over in South Africa that these guys you know good old country boys, good old country boys?
1: Yeah. I think it's all the built-on consumption. Like super lean, <laughs> protein heavy. <laughs> that's pretty much it. Uh plascinets, like we like farm boys. That's um like we've got this one guy playing for us now, Eben Itzibit. This guy is the definition of a brick shit house. He is he looks like a bodybuilder. And Hundred and something kilograms. I do not want to be tackled by one of those guys. I guess that's why I took up shooting.
0: Exactly, and the, the the cricket's pretty big over there too, just like it is over here. But a couple of our guys were a bit naughty a couple of years ago and did some silly things, putting sandpaper on a <laughs> on a cricket ball. So yeah. <laughs> that didn't yeah, go down too that, well, um... but you know.
1: Hey, you, you guys have – although I guess we have a history of being a little bit naughty too with, with our sort of thing that went on. What That was about 20 years ago, I guess.
0: Yeah, yeah. Uh, they all do something yeah. silly here and there. It's only a game. But yes, one thing you guys do really well too is the, the good old-fashioned braai. And I make uh, some really, really oh, yeah. good sausage, man. And it's the first time I've actually – I shot a deer probably, I don't know, maybe a couple, of, maybe a month or so ago and came back, processed it into sausages, and I made the big round – sort of South African boerewors sausage if I'm correct in saying oh, that perfect absolutely delicious that's man. perfect
1: your pronunciation is great absolutely I actually just this morning I had Bouravor's for breakfast that was left over from last night's brides
0: so uh, called out the fridge Woo. Gets me going. And before we were talking on the show too, just for the people that are listening as well, I, I, I live with a bunch of South Africans in 2003 um, on a ski field in America and they, they were all the time trying to teach me Afrikaans, like try this word, try that word. I mean, it's, yeah. 20, it's 2019, I forgot every single thing. But even after four months, they're like, you're not really doing that well at this. And I said, geez, this is hard. You know, I speak English, <laughs> I speak English.
1: Yeah. So I, I must say, like, there is a high probability that the words they were trying to get you to say were not good words. So it's maybe a good thing that you forgot <laughs> them. <laughs>
0: yeah, right, man.
1: Because that's sort of the, go, the go-to the go when you're teaching somebody a different language. You always go to the
0: naughty words first. 100%. Mate, let's get into the meat and potatoes, so to speak, of the of the podcast. I want to talk about the National Rifle League, precision shooting. Can you explain to people what it is, how awesome it is, and how it's sort of Instructed when you actually get into the sport and what sort of things you'll be doing when shooting
1: so how i got into it sort of if i if i backtrack a little bit um i i got back in touch with my dad and he asked me to come shoot a sort of field shooting event with one of his rifles i shot his sock 243 and i had a blast at the event and then i was like wow i need to get into into longer distance stuff um it floated my boat more than sort of the, the pistol shooting i was doing at the time. I ordered one of the, I believe I had the first Ruger Precision Rifle in 6.5 Creedmoor in South Africa that was licensed. And um, I shot that for about a year, just messing around basically. And then I got into shooting Precision Rifle style events. Now, the National Rifle League in South Africa is something that I'm a part of. I'm one of the directors of the National Rifle League here. And basically, the slogan of the National Rifle League, which is a very big organization in America, hosting precision rifle events is to empower the sport. And my friend Dirk and I have basically taken that head on and we're trying to grow the sport by doing things a little bit differently, making it more accessible for the average guy that doesn't necessarily have, you know, a high specked out modern sporting rifle to come and join the, the sport. We've lowered the barrier mm-hmm. of entry um, if that's a good way to describe it, I would say what we're doing and we're getting great numbers at our events. Um, Most of our events are selling out within a few days of opening up the entries and the people are loving it. Um, And it's been super, super cool to see the skill level of the average shooter go up as we've been hosting these events. Um, And I have really enjoyed that part of, of shooting sort of being behind the scenes and and helping people more people get into shooting it's almost just as satisfying as going to shoot a match yourself if not more i would say you're listening to australia's number one hunting shooting and fishing podcast
0: So someone turns up, let's just say, Pete, they turn up for the first time. They have no idea what National Rifle League is and precision shooting. So explain the, the sport to them. What will they be shooting? What distances? How does it generally work?
1: So for us with the National Rifle League, this is our first full season. So what we've done is actually not made it too difficult. It's, it's certainly not easy. And if you come unprepared, you're probably not going to have a great score. But that shouldn't intimidate you. We've sort of built our whole series around the average shooter. We discount the top guy because he's always going to do well. And the bottom guy is probably always going to do terrible. So we want to cater for the 80% of people that are in the middle. And we want to put on an experience that's as engaging and as fun as possible. So shooters will basically, for the majority of the shooter, they're going to have two minutes to engage six targets, potentially from multiple positions at different different distances, anything from about 300 to 750 odd meters. We can make it further, but for me personally, instead of making it super far for a shooter, which is intimidating to a bunch of people, and we can chat about that a bit more just now, um, I would rather challenge a shooter by giving him a difficult position, making the target slightly smaller. And for me, from a match director point of view, that also makes it easier for other people to host National Rifle League events by not having to find a location where somebody can shoot out to a mile because we don't need that. You know, rather put a target at 500 meters and make it, you know, make it 15 centimeters big. That's a difficult target to hit no matter from which position you're shooting it. So you can challenge a shooter on different levels other than distance, especially for a newer shooter because the distance is intimidating for a newer shooter where sort of once you get settled into this game, the distance is just, you know, it's just another number because you know exactly what your rival's going to do at that distance. So it doesn't really matter how far the target is as long as you sort of don't get into that transonic zone where the bullet starts doing funny things. And, and for most modern calibers, at 1,000 meters, it would be the same as shooting something at 300 meters, I would say, if you've got your rifle system set up correctly with your correct ballistic information.
0: Without putting you on the spot, I guess, the National Rifle League, you've got us at the PRS as well. Are these guys, you know, I won't say working together because, you know, there's always a bit of rivalry amongst different types of shooting. So are they not seeing? well, you guys are treading on our toes a bit? Are you guys working together or is it you guys just completely just doing your own thing?
1: You know what? Initially, like I was super pumped to start the National Rifle League in South Africa because I wanted to provide shooters with more opportunity to shoot, you know, because if we can shoot every other weekend instead of like once every three months, that gives us more opportunity to increase our skill and to practice our craft. Um, And the PRS guys saw us as a threat to them, which is not the case at all. You know, I don't want to steal their market. In fact, I openly said that I wasn't going to plan events on the same weekends that they were they were having events purely because I didn't want to split the shooter base, right? Um, and then we sort of introduced different categories to open it up to to the average Joe, almost with, who doesn't have a highly spec'd out rifle. Um, and we started the NRL 22 league and they've sort of just jumped on the bandwagon and, and, and tried to copy quite a few things that we've been doing to sort of change the game. And it's actually been quite flattering. Um, you know, that there's that saying that says imitation is the best form of flattery. And um, it's pretty clear how they're how they're doing that. And the shooters have come back to us and saying, like, listen, even though, you know, they're trying to do what you guys are doing, the events just aren't that much fun compared to what the National Rifle League's doing. For example, Jason, like, when I have an event in Cape Town, like, we have about 50 shooters show up, which is quite a good turnout for us. Like, the PRS shoot in Cape Town, they're lucky if they break 10. Um, I have, afterwards, we we've got beer on tap that's sponsored. There's full catering with, like, a three-course meal with multiple different types of desserts so we get up early in the morning we register coffee rusks rusk is a big thing with coffee here we go out we shoot like 12 o'clock we're done shooting and then basically everybody packs away their rifles we drink beer and we chat about our experiences that we had on the day and and that's the other thing like what i've really loved about sports shooting is the friendships that i've gotten, like I've added so many great people in my life that I've met through shooting sports and we're all like-minded. Um, and that's been such a wonderful thing. So we really want to encourage that sticking around after the match and, and engaging with your fellow shooters. Um, and that's been such a such a fun thing to to be able to give the guys an opportunity to experience that through the National Rifle League
0: yeah well it looks like if you're not to put crap on the other guys but forget the PRS guys head to the National Rifle League awesome people and free beer on tap you can't go wrong
1: (laughs) (laughs) exactly like I could have just stopped at free beer right
0: (laughs) yeah people would just turn up just for fun anyway
1: yeah and then we've recently started doing the, the National Rifle League 22 which is basically a miniaturized version of a centerfire match. It's 22 long rifle only. And when we really excited to also have just opened up an air gun division for the guys with their PCPs. And actually one of Matt Dubber's friends came to shoot one that, that we had two weekends ago. And uh, he ended up coming third at that match, which was really cool. And what I love about that is it's gonna give guys the opportunity to bring their wife with, cause now she doesn't have to deal with recoil or a loud bang. And we shoot 22-room fire out to 100 meters, basically. 92 meters is the furthest target. And um, guys brought their kids with. And obviously, first of all, it doesn't cost you much to shoot 22-room fire at all. Um, the cost of sh- of every round is, is way less than a center fire round. So I'm really excited about that in, in terms of growing the next generation of shooters and making it more of a family affair um, where you can bring your kids along and, and sort of train up the next generation of shooters. That's been a really cool thing, and I'm really excited to run with that further.
0: Let's talk about the rifles. Uh, what can we use? What should we use in the National Rifle League precision shooting? And what are the main calibers used uh, when shooting as well?
1: Okay, so first of all, I want to say, like, if you want to come to any sort of rifle match, there's chances there that there would be somebody that's going to lend your rifle. Like I do that when we host matches. If somebody's keen on getting into the sport, and they don't necessarily have the equipment. Hell, you can shoot one of my guns and at every single match that I've had, somebody has shot my rifle. Um, You obviously just pay for the ammo and uh, you can shoot my gun and you can have an experience and see really, is this something I wanna get into? Now let's assume you, you have your own gun and you wanna start by showing up to your first match. First of all, you gotta be prepared to eat a little bit of humble pie. Like I thought I could shoot pretty good until I went to my first PRS match. And I came stone dead last, but I loved it. Um, so it was, I always joke and say, that was the most fun I've ever had at sucking at some. <laughs> and um, so uh, I went sort of went back to the drawing board, but we we'll, we can jump back into that later. So rifle wise, I currently shoot a 6.5 Creedmoor. Now I shoot 140 grand bullet. Uh, it depends. Sometimes I'll shoot the burger hybrids, but for the time being, I'm shooting the Hornady ELDMs. And the reason I'm doing that is we, because the sport's pretty new here, we don't have necessarily the funds to put hit indicators on all the targets, whereas the trend in America has been for the guys to go to the lighter six-millimeter calibers like a six-dasher or a six gay tiger as a new one that's just come it's actually called the <laughs> six gt but that's the the internet calling it the gay tiger which i think is hilarious um uh, brilliant. and then there's the all the six millimeter variants uh six by 47 six creed obviously which is a super fast little round um but personally i've never felt handicapped because i shoot a 6.5 creed um even though most of my competition have all gone to six millimeters i personally think it's it's you know it's about It's not about the arrow, it's about the Indian. And if you can drive your rifle, I'm pretty sure I can win our biggest match of the year with a 308, if it's accurate. Um, And when I say if it's accurate, if it can shoot under a half of MOA at 100 meters, I'll probably still win that match um, with a caliber that's not as good as the modern sort of precision rifle calibers. Now, it's it's daunting to people when they really sort of want to jump in with the sport because they're seeing high spec custom rifles um, like the one I shoot. But you don't need that to get started. Like I started with a Ruger Precision Rifle um, and that was super, super capable. I just changed it because I got the opportunity through a sponsor to build a custom rifle at a really good deal. And um, I I jumped at it. And that's been a good decision for me looking back on that. Um, But yeah, don't feel that you need all the best stuff to get started. You really, really don't. Just go out and shoot. I mean, even if it takes just going to a match and looking and being a spectator, do that um and go see what it's about go jump on youtube and look at the national rifle league events we've got a great video about our cape town match we had earlier in the year the new videos about to come out the national rifle league in america's got a great youtube channel where they document their matches the sport is is a ton of fun and the people are super friendly for the most part um and everybody's willing to help you to to help you become a more proficient shooter and that's what i really enjoyed like i learned more about shooting precision rifles by going to one competition than I probably would in 10 years of just fitting at the range by myself, without a doubt.
0: Any, is there anyone floating around at the range when you're shooting? I just, I got a, I've just got had a 260 for oh, probably three to four months now, and no, I don't do you know, like precision shooting at the range, and I'm considering getting into it. I run 143 grain ELDX from Hornady for more long-range hunting. But uh, any, two, any yeah. 260s floating around there?
1: Yeah, yeah, a bunch of guys shooting a 260s too. Wonderful caliber. What I've noticed is a few guys have gone the um, actually improved route on the 260s just to get a little bit more oomph, especially if you're going to go for like something like the 143. What I like what you're doing is if you're going to be shooting a hunting bullet with a good BC like that 143 ELDX, there's no reason why you can't shoot that in a match too, right? If you're doing long range matches with your hunting bullet and your BC is the same, What that basically means is when you take that rifle hunting you're going to be so confident in where that shot's going to land you're going to just have more confidence in your gear and i think that's where a lot of good shot placement comes from it's not it's eliminating that doubt um and that's why i was able to take some shots on animals like i don't want to do the long range hunting thing like the kilometer type of stuff but i recently shot a big kudu bull that video has not come out yet but i shot that kudu bull at 710 meters in namibia and it drops in its tracks due to a good shot placement with 140 grain VLD, yeah. which basically got the same BC as the or a slightly worse BC than the 140 grain hybrid. But I put that bullet like if I took a stick and I had to go point the stick on the on the animal where I wanted to shoot it and hit exactly where I wanted to over quite a quite a distance. And that's largely due to having super confidence in my rifle. I know exactly where that shot's going to break. I know how to manage the recoil on my rifle because I shoot it a lot. So I see the bullet hitting the animal. Um, And all of those things, I think, just make us more ethical hunters.
0: Well, if there's a video floating around, Pete, of you shooting a bull that's not yet released, I'm going to look at my WhatsApp in about two or three hours, and hopefully (laughs) I've got a link there, mate. (laughs) But then again, depends on when it's coming out
1: yeah i'll send you a picture of the bull unfortunately this scenario sort of typical hunting you know it it unfolded pretty rapidly and there was no time to pull out cameras in fact i actually had to shoot this bull left-handed hanging off the side sort of um rails of the truck to gain elevation to shoot over this bush so it was sort of an impromptu shot and we don't have it on video but we do have the sort of afterwards we took some nice beautiful pictures and uh yeah it was what an experience! Because in that occasion, we actually shot free-range kudu, so they're not in a high-fenced environment, and we walked for ten hours a day for five days before we found one. Um, so it was it was pretty incredible. H-
0: having a bit of a laugh, I did when I was watching your kudu ball video. I did have to have a laugh because you did have your big six point five Creedmoor, big heavy. Um, rifle carrying it around trying to get the shot so is there any purchases coming soon for a nice little good hunting rifle or are you going to carry around the big one still and (laughs) was quite funny
1: yeah dude nailed it so i in that video i actually shot a gen 2 razor from vortex with a heavy palmer barrel from barbline so that in itself is i think three times the weight of a normal person's whole hunting rifle never mind then adding an aluminum chassis with from mdt it was heavy um so um yes absolutely i'm 100% one hundred percent building a custom hunting rifle. There's no way I'm carrying something this heavy ever again in my life. It's just not worth it. <laughs> yeah, it's um it was unpleasant.
0: Tell us about reloading, mate, if you're getting into obviously, you know, precision shooting, how beneficial is reloading for your rifles?
1: Yeah. So I think you guys will pretty much be in our in the same boat as we are in South Africa, whereas if you go and buy off the store ammunition, it's ridiculously expensive. I don't know if that's the case in Australia. Absolutely. Yeah. So that's pretty much what we're struggling here with, because everything's imported. Then there's duties and and value added tax and all of those things. And before you know it, the store puts their twenty percent on, and it's it's unaffordable. You really can't shoot high volume, um, you know, because we'll go out to a two day match and it's two hundred and fifty rounds, you know, in a weekend. That's a lot. And then to factor in training and stuff like that, so you kind of have to reload. Obviously, you do get quite a few benefits when you reload. You can custom make ammo for your gun. And I don't know if you jumped into why custom ammo is beneficial in your podcast in the past. But basically, you can just tune it to the exact point where your rifle loves that combination. And then if you really want to go a little bit further, you know, sort of I've got the best average load that I know is going to work on a really hot day. I also know it's going to work really well when it's, 10 degrees in the winter on a morning, the first couple of stages, you know, it's not sensitive to, to temperature changes. And really you can only get that with, with custom made ammunition. And, uh, Obviously, not to mention bringing the cost down. Now, bringing the cost down is a very interesting topic because when you bring the cost down of ammunition, you end up shooting more. So I don't (laughs) think you ever (laughs) win in this equation.
0: Yeah, that's crazy, isn't it? I mean, I don't. When I do a lot of shooting, I probably don't shoot that many rounds per year because I'm not in the I guess precision rifle type stuff at this stage. But you know, I, I look for the accuracy. That's one of my main things for me: is purely good accuracy out of my rifle. Finding what it likes and then just sticking with it with that bullet. For the life of that barrel.
1: Yeah. So, generally, what I do is I buy enough bullets for every barrel. So, I've got, let's say, I've got 3,000 ELDMs from the same batch for that barrel. And that's kind of how I just run all those until the end of the barrel. And then on the next one, more than likely, because I keep my reamers, they're only used on my rifles. And um, so, I cut the next barrel at the exact same spec. And chances are, after I've broken it in, I never really test accuracy and stuff like that for the first 100 to I would say 150 to 200 rounds. Then I'll start seeing what loaded likes, but on, I'm on my third barrel now, and it's basically just, it, it loves the same thing because I cut the same throat every time.
0: If people are getting into like you know, precision shooting, like they turn up, they've got a gun in the required caliber, whatever they decide to choose, what do they need? What, what other tools or equipment do you think are say, really important that they must have when they're getting into this type of yeah, precision shooting uh, for the National Rifle League? Okay, so let's assume
1: you've got a rifle and an optic. So really, you want a first focal plane optic, we'll jump into that in a little bit more detail as to why just now. But I would say one of the first things you do need, let's assume you have a rifle with an optic is a good bipod. Now, I often find guys, you know, you have a, I guess, let's just for your listeners, our exchange rate is about 10 to one. Okay, so uh, 10 South African rands equals to one Australian dollar. So just for the, for the math side. Um, so I often find guys have really nice rifles with really good optics and a nice chassis system. And then they put a little flimsy you know, uh, $50 bipod on there or whatever the case may be. And that's going to introduce quite a bit of weakness in your system. And you're going to be missing shots as a result of a cheap bipod. So I would say invest in a quality bipod from the start, without a doubt um and that's something guys skimp on often and that's going to result as i said in in misses down the line then the next thing you get is i would say get a good versatile shooting bag something like a game changer if you're getting specifically into this sport and i don't think you need to go into the black hole of having 17 different bags for 17 scenarios just get one nice rear bag that you can use on a barricade or whatever the case may be then there's a couple of nice-to-haves but not need-to-haves. I don't think you need a rangefinder when you're getting into the sport because most of our state, well, every single one of the stages I've ever shot in the last three years of shooting competition, they give us the range. And the ranges are never out by more than five meters. And you're unless you're shooting at a 1,000 meters, you're probably not going to miss as a result of that small of a variance in, in the ranging. So don't worry about a rangefinder. It is beneficial to have a set of binoculars uh, when you're going to these matches because – Oftentimes you've got to find the targets under time. And what I found is by spotting when my competitors are shooting, by the time when it's my time to go, I know sort of exactly where the targets are and I can find them quicker so I can engage them faster. That means I've got more time to build a position and squeeze off a good trigger pull. Um, So having a good set of binoculars is really nice. You'll often see guys at these competitions have their own tripods, but more than likely, if you ever need to shoot from a tripod, they're going to supply you with one. So I don't think wasting money on a tripod. Guys must avoid getting into a gear race in the sport, and it can very quickly become a gear race trying to purchase, you know, the best of everything. So a lot of times I see people turning the sport into a gear race, and I don't think that has to be the case. Once you've set up with a good bipod, a good rifle, preferably in a chassis system that you can have a bit more versatility, and it's just been designed to sort of handle these things better, is invest in training, invest in ammo. But you don't need to spend crazy money on upgrading your rifle and having the best of everything, because that's not going to make you a better shooter. Um, What will make you a better shooter is spending time with the equipment that you've already got, putting rounds down your gun, learning what it's going to do. That's going to be way more beneficial than purchasing the latest and greatest rangefinder, or spotting scope, or whatever the case may be.
0: You had brought up a very good point before about scopes. Now I'm a bit of a me and my friend have a bit of a running argy bargy debate, bit of fun backwards and forwards with uh, you know Mills versus MoA. Now I'm a bit of a Mills guy, but what do people need a in regards to scopes, and then what suits you know like precision shooting and and that sort of thing, Mills or MoA?
1: Okay, so that's an interesting one. Obviously in Australia, you guys are using kilometers and. And not yards and inches, right?
0: Correct. Correct. Normally, when we do okay. like, uh, if we do like, if we're shooting at hundred meters, for an example, and we do group sizes, we normally work in inches because that's just how we work. But you know, in that sort of thing. But yeah. normally, yeah, like a hundred meters. You know, yeah, etc. Yep.
1: I think personally, the way to go is shooting moles uh, or MRAD, as it's also known. And the reason for that is it's a way easier system to understand. Now, for guys that have grown up or been shooting MOA for their whole life it does seem like a foreign concept to change to this new thing moles right moles is way easier to understand so let me break it down for you guys at 100 meters one mole is equal to 10 centimeters now on your scope the tracking of your scope on a mole scope from 0 to 1 it's 10 clicks so that means every click equals to one centimeter so that makes it way easier to Estimate the size of targets at different distances because you don't have to do a funny conversion from yards into meters. It's just a way easier system. Now, if that doesn't sell you on why you should shoot moles, this will. When you go to a match like this, chances are 90% of the shooters will be shooting mole-based scopes. Now, why is that relevant? Here's why. If, let's say, Jason, I'm shooting a stage before you Okay, I'm super helpful if I've shot the stage and I clean the stage and I I get up without you asking to me, asking me, I'll actually go to you and say, Jason, I was holding a half a mole at 600 meters. That was my wind hold. And if you're shooting MOA, that I might as well be speaking Chinese because like (laughs) unless you're like a math genius, you're not going to run those numbers in your head. Okay, maybe at five hundred meters you can because it's a nice round number. But if it's seven hundred and twenty-seven meters, you know, good luck with that one.
0: <laughs> um,
1: right. So, so that's just sort of why I would say guys should should be looking at mole scopes. It's it's way easier to understand. Um, it's way easier to communicate with other people, and um, yeah, it's everybody's kind of moving towards that. And um, actually, on my store, when people buy scopes from me now, they I, I see an order come through for an MOA scope, and I, I would phone the guy up before I send it to him, and I would ask him, like, what are you planning on doing with this? And if he says, listen, I want to get into precision rifle-style shooting, I'll have a 30-minute discussion with him as to why he should actually get a mill-based scope, because it would be way easier for him to understand. And then… I get feedback from people after they've gone out shooting with it and going like, "Wow, thank you very much. This is this is so much more logical for us to use because we're used to meters and centimeters. That's what we use every day." Um, so I would definitely say, without a doubt, it's a mole. It's a mole answer.
0: It's good when people do that. Actually, it's good that you ring them up and say so you have a chat with them first. I think a lot of that's missing in today's business. Finding out what people want and instead of just sending them something and saying, "Well," If they know you're in precision shooting, then you probably have a good idea that they're probably going to be doing the same thing you're doing or they're going to be trying to get into precision shooting of some, type, of some type. And that's a good thing to do, man. Ring up and find out what they want to do and give them the best product first. I don't know. I remember you mentioned a bit earlier and it might have been in the show or before we did the show and I don't know how many things I've bought, Pete, and I'm like, why did I buy this? When I first bought my deer rifle, I should have bought like a 2-7 to seven or a 3-9 to because I used to hunt thick country here, Maybe South Africa is a little bit different because it's maybe more flat and open depending on where you're from. I put a, a 6.5 to 24 Bushnell on a deer hunting rifle that I'm probably not going to shoot more than 100 meters. Like what an idiot I was. But I wish I knew all this stuff For that, sure. you know, that, I, that I know now.
1: So example, like yesterday somebody purchased a set of binoculars from me. So I phoned him up and I was like, what are you going to use with it? He's like, no, he's going to take it hunting. So I was like, you bought a 12 by 50 that's a giant pair of binoculars. And it's probably not gonna be great to, to, you know, log those with you when you're going hunting. So we ended up downgrading him um, to a 42 by 10 by 42, excuse me. Um, And uh, in terms of we downgraded him in magnification, but he's gonna get a smaller package. And so what he ended up doing is he just upgraded to sort of the next level of binoculars in terms of glass quality, um, because it's sort of even out on the price. And um, he was super pumped that I took the time to phone him. You know, it doesn't make me more money when I do that. But I just feel like sort of I've got all this experience that I've gotten through the years of of shooting at sort of at the highest level, um, both locally and internationally, that I might as well just use that. And and that's going to be sort of what differentiates me from myself and my store and that of my competition. Because there you kind of just another customer and you, they just give you what you want.
0: I want to talk about, scope uh, what about magnification a lot of different ideas on what people should use probably spending more money is going to get you a better quality of optic that's to be expected people don't have to spend big money but what about magnification and i guess certain types of scopes what should people be sort of looking at because i know reticles make a big difference to a lot of people as well what's your thoughts on that
1: That's a really good question, and I think something people struggle with often is deciding which sort of magnification to get. Now, at the moment, I shoot the Razer Gen 2. It's a 4.5 to 27. Now, when I'm actually shooting matches, I would never go to 27. First of all, once you crank on that magnification, the field of view just becomes like a straw. And we're under such tight time pressures, like you can't afford not to find a target as quickly as possible. So I would kind of keep it on 12 even if you're shooting out to a kilometer, like 12 is plenty to see a target at a kilometer. What I have found, Jason, is that the only thing that a high magnification optic really gives me the benefit of is getting a solid 100 meter zero because you can sort of have a finer aiming point. Reticle-wise, I would say, like, I love the EBR style reticles that we have in the vortexes. As I said, I don't know if we mentioned this in the podcast, but I do shoot for vortex, so I am obviously a little bit biased towards their product. I also have other optics, but I just... I don't know, I I love the reticle in the razor so much, and that's purely because I've spent so much time behind one. Um reticle-wise, you really want something with a sort of Christmas tree style reticle. Like a, a center, just a normal plex reticle is not gonna do it for you. Because you're gonna need the ability to sort of let's assume you miss, which we all do at some point. If you're if you've broken a good shot and the and the terrain allows for you to see where that bullet hits you're going to need something to measure where that bullet hits. So if you're lucky enough to have a second round engagement, you can use that information to make a correction based off that wind hold or the elevation. If you let's assume you hit a little bit low and that you can actually fix that. Now in the uh, EBR7C reticle, you actually have the sort of Christmas tree effect. Initially, when you look at a reticle like that and you're used to shooting like a normal Plex reticle, It can be very overwhelming, but it's like anything. Like, if I gave you, if you went from an old Nokia to an iPhone, you're like, wow, what the hell is this? And it's basically the same thing. Like, spending a little bit of time with it, you sort of just become used to it, and it doesn't look busy to the eye anymore. What I also do love about the new sort of style reticles, and that's not just a Vortex thing, a lot of new companies are doing this, is with the little floating dot in the middle. I'm a big fan of a floating dot. Uh, Often, first focal plane scopes get criticized for having a really thick reticle when it's on the highest magnification and the floating dot solves that to a large extent. Now to put that into perspective on the, on the razor, the floating dot I I'm quoting here and I think it's accurate, but I believe it's the thickness of the dot is 0.02 moles. So that's two millimeters. That's how much the targ- the dot will cover on your actual targets. Now that's a pretty fine aiming point if you think about that. And um, a lot of hunters that have come to my house and checked out my gear have looked for my scope and they're like, wow, I didn't think I could ever hunt with a first focal plane optic. But I mean, this floating dot is, is, is something pretty cool. What I also like about the floating dot is it really... Like, it feels like it snaps my eye onto the target pretty quickly and helps me with quicker target acquisition, which is quite a big thing in the game, as I mentioned.
0: A lot of people ask me, too, and maybe I might be a bit of a bastard here, but (laughs) um, uh, illuminated reticles. Now, I don't see a use for them for what I use sort of thing, but do they come in handy in, you know, precision shooting, National Rifle League? Um, I think it's a bit of extra money that probably could be better spent elsewhere, but what do you think?
1: I agree with you. So, um, like I have my razor in front of me here. I've never even put the battery inside it. I've I've never used it. Uh, most of my optics, I don't have batteries inside. The only optics that have illuminated reticles that actually work for me are my Swarovski's because they come with the battery already installed. <laughs>
0: good point yeah it's not it's not something i use at all i never understood i mean i know it's probably exciting for some people they're like oh get the illumination i'm like what for i mean unless i'm shooting right at dark or very early in the morning if i'm hunting but i'm probably not going to be using that type of scope or that size scope anyway even though you can buy different ones i just didn't really see a need for it but let's say if someone, and I'm going to do both here, I've done my currency calculations here, but let's say they haven't got a rifle, but where do you think if they had, say, two to $3,000, which is Australian, say, twenty to 30,000 Rand, uh, South African, where do you think the money should be spent first? What's the first thing that you think, bang, that money should go towards this, whether it's equipment, an action, a barrel, you name it, tell me.
1: So we're saying you're starting from scratch, you have nothing, right?
0: Nothing. Let's say 30,000 Rand. Yeah, 3,000 bucks.
1: Okay. So I would invest in a good rifle system that will give you the ability to upgrade it over time. Now that's going to be a Remington 700 base rifle. Now in South Africa, we have, we get, it's called the Remington 700 ADL. I don't know if you guys get those over there.
0: I'm not sure. I'll have a look at it now while you're talking.
1: So they're about, I would say a thousand dollars give or take if I'm doing the the convergency, ADL. And uh, you can get one in 6.5 Creedmoor. Now, what's really nice about these is the Remington 700 action is basically the most popular action out there, right? Even my Defiance Deviant I shoot now is is an improved version of that. Now, you could have a Remington 700 action blueprinted over time, but it's going to give you a good solid base. And the reason I say get a Remington 700 over something like a Hawa is just because down the line, you've got more options because it's a more popular action, there's more off-the-market things available for it. It's going to give you a better base to start off with. Now, it's a little bit more expensive than the Hawa, but in South Africa, at least, the ADL comes with a, a muzzle that's already threaded. So there, automatically, you're saving like another $200 just from not having to take that to your gunsmith to have that done. Then I would say invest in a good quality optic. It depends sort of how much budget you have if we're limited a good quality optic in south africa will at least eat the rest of that budget now i wouldn't say go full crazy but i'm a firm believer in the philosophy of buying ones and crying ones like yes you could purchase something a little bit cheaper but chances are over time you're going to want to upgrade that again and then effectively you're going to be spending more money so i would look at sort of like a mid-level optic to start off with something like a vortex pst gen 2 they're probably in the like a I don't know, thousand eight hundred dollars. I'm not sure exactly what they cost in Australia. They're about twenty thousand rand here, um, and that is a phenomenal optic. And you can that thing will last you a lifetime. I've actually made a, a video of me abusing one of those and throwing it out of my car at seventy <laughs> kilometers that, yeah. an hour. And it, <laughs> yeah, and it and it works. I shot it. I put it back on the rifle. Shot it out to seven hundred um, and fifty meters, and so I would I would invest in that, and then over time add things like a chassis upgrade your trigger to something like a nice remington 700 trigger get a solid bipod so i would go remington 700 65 creedmoor adl vortex pst gen 2 don't skimp on the rings buy a nice set of a good quality set of rings don't buy a nice optic and put cheap rings on there yeah scope rifle get started somebody will lend you a bipod if need be at a match people are usually super friendly at these matches you don't need Kestrel to start off. I know you recently did a great podcast with the guys from Kestrel. I really enjoyed listening to that, by the way. Um, uh, Strelok Pro is 100% fine. Most people will have a wind meter there at a match, and they can actually just give you the wind to input into that ballistic calculator. Uh, So you don't need to spend crazy money to get into the sport.
0: Yeah, I was just looking on the internet while you were talking, too. It looks like we do have the Remington 700 ADL synthetic as well. But going on from that, are you telling me the cheap, you know, $2 Chinese rings are no good? Is that what you're telling me? (laughs) (laughs) Off off eBay? Off eBay?
1: (laughs) The worst part about it is people buy those rings, and then they torque them too much also. And then they just crush the internals of their optics. And then they go, yeah, my reticle's doesn't work or whatever case may be in there but meanwhile the whole thing's crushed on the inside so please guys i know this is like a manly thing not to read a manual of something but please read the manual and buy yourself a torque wrench when you're installing your own optic you're going to save yourself a lot of hassle and um, embarrassment of going back to your the shop where you purchased the optic and they're going to come back and say sir you crushed this optic so read the manual when it comes to installing your optic, you can figure out the radical if you want to, but just read the torque specs
0: on on your <laughs> if, rings,
1: please, gentlemen.
0: If I, if I normally chat to people, I said, get the Wheeler fat wrench. That's like, just buy one of those, buy once, cry once. They're about 120 bucks Australian. Best invention if you own a firearm, you could possibly, I mean, there's obviously different manufacturers out there get something good have it for the rest of your life take care of it and it's going to do you for action yeah. screws scope screws you're not going to damage your optics because the last thing you want to do is have a vortex or bushnell or Swarovski, whatever scope you've got and then crush the shit out of it you don't want to do that
1: exactly so and the thing is with long-range shooting or just shooting and precision shooting is repeatability now there's I, I used to love the show Mythbusters, and they had a quote on there. The difference between messing around uh, and science is writing stuff down, right? So um, they didn't quite phrase it like that, but that's the PG version of that quote. And um, so to put to put this into perspective, I recently got back from my Namibia hunt. I had a Swarovski X5 on. I took the rifle out of the chassis, took off all the sort of competition bits and pieces and turned it into sort of the lightest possible version I could. Then this week Tuesday, I went out to shoot again. I put the the razor back on. I didn't take it out of the rings, but I took the rings off the action. I took the the action out of the chassis, put all the competition bits back and bolted it back up. My first round out of the rifle, I shot a plate at 500 meters and absolutely center punched it. Um, And uh, that just gives you an idea of the precision you can still have when you're talking stuff down to exactly the same spec it was before you took it off so you can just go back to where you were immediately and it makes it easier when diagnosing things let's say something is going wrong on your rifle you can then go through a little checklist and immediately eliminate a variable of something being loose by just taking your torque range and your specs that you've written down what you've talked what to um, and just making sure everything is tight and then you can go on to the next thing to troubleshoot but more than likely that's going to That's going to be one variable you can, you can tick off pretty
0: quickly. Talking about rings, I remember when I was working up the the two sixty and I think I bought a, a set and from other rifle too, my sort of varmint two four three rifle. I bought some of the the Night Force ultralight rings and I thought, man, this is like five hundred dollars Australian, maybe a bit more, five hundred and fifty dollars for two sets of rings, which is pretty crazy when you think about it. Yeah. I thought this shit better be good, man, this shit better be good <laughs> You know?
1: <laughs> yeah. But at the end of the day, um this is a long term sport. So if you're thinking about it you're buying a quality set of rings or a quality optic, it's going to last you forever. You're never going to have to replace those. Where if you're buying something cheap, first of all, if you ever want to get rid of it, it's worth nothing because most people know that oh, I don't want to buy that shit from you. So buy the right things from the start. And over time, you'll save yourself money by doing that. And I, that's something I've done my whole life. And I do that with cars, with guns, with... Everything. So and and it's really served me well.
0: I know when people get a bit impatient too and they're you know, they might want to buy something. Like I had a guy just the other day who was talking about, you know, shotguns and he I've normally buy good shotguns here or at least decent, you know, like and he messaged me, What do you think about this? And I said, Have you like what sort of job have you got? He because you got a good job and I said, Don't be impatient. Wait another month, get your money together and get something good. Buy once cry once like you're not in any rush you know you just got your license you're not in a hurry just buy something good and you're this if this shotgun for 400 dollars more will last you until the day you'll be handing it down to your kids if they get into shooting so don't be so impatient to run out there and get something really quickly and then regret it later on buy what you really wanted later on down the track and then you've already spent that other money you're actually spending a lot more by buying something earlier which you're never going to keep anyway
1: yeah, and the thing is, you'll never really be happy with that. At least I found that in the once or twice where I've sort of caved on my decision and bought like on I'm an impulse, I'm like immediately almost I'm regretting it. Um, and then every time you use it, you're like, oh, I should have just waited a little bit and gotten what I really wanted. So I've just made that sort of decision that I'll never, I'll never give on what I want. Uh, I'll never give in on what I want again. I'll just get, I'll wait. Especially here in South Africa, it's going to take you four months to take your rifle home anyway. So you might as well wait another month for the thing you really want to buy to come into stock and and pick that up rather.
0: And that might not be a bad thing anyway. If you're waiting around, waiting for your license or your approvals to come in, it gives you time to to save up. And precision shooting is not cheap, but you can just wait, wait and buy it as things come up and you get the money.
1: Yeah, for sure. And you you can, there's obviously quite a few specials, but we recently jumped on the black Friday bandwagon and we've got some really cool specials and things. So keep an eye out for those too. Um, or actually on, on scopes and stuff, you can, you can save quite a bit of money by maybe somebody's upgrading their PST gen two to a razor and you can pick up a second hand PST gen two that's in good neck. Um, maybe have it checked out by a retailer to make sure it's still tracking true and everything. And you could save yourself a significant amount of money by doing something like that. And I don't see a problem by by doing that.
0: Mate, what are your top three, let's say, for the experienced or the beginner, just general precision shooting, long-range shooting? Say your top three tips for people that you think are just absolutely the best tips you can give for experienced or even beginner getting into the sport.
1: So I would without a doubt say that, that rule one should be dry fire. Uh, you should do as much dry fire as you can. Cause often guys criticize me like, yeah, you have got, you've got your own range, like 10 minutes from your house. You can shoot a lot, you can shoot where you want to. But the reality is I don't actually shoot that much. Like when you guys see me doing videos on, on YouTube or whatever the case may be, chances are those videos are, are quite a few months old and they've been sitting on my hard drive. Um, and usually you can tell that by the vegetation in the background, like it's still super dry, but we're like mid mid winter already. Um, and then I would say rule two is after you've done some dry fire is do some more dry fire. And uh, tip three would be to see rule one and two, I guess. Uh, really, I mean, it's it's pretty simple. Like if you want to get good at this sport, you need to be able to keep your rifle still on a variety of, of different, different obstacles. And if you can't keep your rifle still, you're not going to learn the ability to read wind because your rifle will be wobbling all over the place and you can't trust your wind call that you're seeing your scope. What I've also found, Jason, is by doing dry fire practice, like you're not going to go out and practice dry fire drills. You can see when you break that trigger, is my rifle moving, you know, focus on doing a perfect trigger pull. Whereas I find sometimes when I actually go out to train and physically shoot live ammunition, I kind of have this thing called point pull hope. You know you're sort of on target and you end up pulling the trigger and you hope the target goes cling. um <laughs> and that you don't i don't i find you don't do that at all when you do when you're doing dry fire so i guess if we summarize that into into the first tip uh but yeah that's that's kind of what i would suggest that you can never dry fire enough and it doesn't have to be a lot like 10 minutes at night while your wife's cooking supper i usually just take a bar stool, flip it upside down. I shoot from the legs or whatever the case may be. It annoys the living crap out of my wife because I'm going click, click, click the whole <laughs> yeah. time. Um, but you do learn very well how to to keep a rifle steady. Uh, tip two would be to to just go out, I guess, to a match and throw yourself out in the deep end. Um, nobody's going to judge you if you suck. Really, they won't because everybody has to start somewhere. And it is a daunting thing to to start by sort of going out of your comfort zone, but I promise you it'll be worth it. Um, And tip three would be to, I guess, dovetail with tip tip two would be to go out and see what you really want to buy before you start buying stuff. There's a bunch of guys that are doing the sport that can give you great advice and use those resources. The guys will be more than happy to help you. Use resources such as YouTube. Just make maybe do a little bit of homework, like vet the resources, make sure it's not a paid ad or whatever, somebody trying to sell you something. And then I would say bonus tip is I don't know about you guys, but don't trust the guy at your local gun store. Chances are he doesn't do the sport. He doesn't really know what's going on. Um, I've heard some like overhearing stories while purchasing ammunition or something or, or reloading components, hearing somebody talking about optics. I'm, I'm cringing at the stuff people are saying. So make sure you're getting information from from trusted people in the community um, and making sure you buy the correct thing the, the first time off. Cause that happened to me. Like I went out, I told the guy at the gun shop, this is what I want to do. I want to do precision rifle style shooting in uh, knowing what I know now at that point in time, he had no idea what I was talking about. He sold me a second focal plane scope in MOA. And that's literally the worst thing you could get for the sport. <laughs> <laughs> so luckily I bought, still bought a quality optic. I bought a first generation of the vortex PSTs and um, I was able to sell it a year later. I think I lost like $30 on the deal. So yeah, it was, it, it, it was still a good buy in, in that sense that I didn't lose too much value. But had I bought like a little El Cheapo first focal plane whatever, like a, I don't want to mention any brands, but you know, um, I'm, that might not have been the case. I might have struggled to get rid of it or I might not have been able to sell it at all. And then you could sort of have to take out a whole nother $2,000 to purchase sort of a, a better optic.
0: Tell us about, and you mentioned it just a little bit earlier, about the rifles you've got. Tell us about your more, even though you mentioned it a little bit, uh, and the CZ, the 455 you just purchased, what, a couple of months ago, if I'm correct. Maybe those videos are a bit older, but tell us about those, the purpose of them. What do you like about them?
1: Okay, so first of all, let me give you a little bit of a rundown of my, my current match rifle. I say current because of the other one's in the works. Um, I'm shooting a heavy Palmer Bartline barrel, uh, built on a Defiance Deviant Tactical Action. 20 MOI rail that's built into the action we've mentioned. It's got a Vortex Razor Gen 2 on. The sort of heart of the system, I would say, is my and Andy Taxport Pro single stage trigger. Now, I shoot a pretty light trigger. I also shoot a flat trigger shoe because I do feel like it gives me a better consistent trigger pull. And I do like the little, you can't see it now, but maybe your listeners can check it out on, on my channel. It's got a little thing to index your finger on, and that gives me, repeatability when i put my finger on my trigger shoe but i know my fingers in the same place every time because again the name of the game in the sport is consistency and then basically uh, bipod wise i'm running uh, atlas psr bipod that i really love and then this whole system is built into an mdt acc chassis and i do believe mdt is sold over there i was super fortunate i don't know if you know this but i was involved in the design of the acc chassis from basically the ground up i mean we started by putting ideas on paper um, and it's turned into this super purpose-built competition style chassis Um, and i mean this thing is unbelievable i actually referred to this rifle as alexa uh, like the amazon alexa where you just basically (laughs) ask it to do something and and it does what you want it to do she's amazing i've got a I've got a bond with this rifle. Like I honestly do, it's difficult to explain to somebody. Like I go to a match with this rifle and I know I'm gonna win. Um, it's it's a confidence thing I have with this rifle. I've This is my first custom rifle and it will probably always be my favorite rifle. Uh, to chat about the CZ455, it's a 22 long rifle. Uh, that's also gonna go into an MDT chassis pretty shortly. And that's basically, I've gotten that first of all for the NRL 22 series that we've started up here. But for the most part, it's going to be to allow me to train at a fraction of the cost than shooting center fire ammunition. And it's also going to free up a lot of time in terms of not spending time behind the reloading bench. Because I actually, I've got a carbon copy of my match rifle in two two three Remington, but I still need to do all the case prep. I still need to do all the loading. Whereas if I can break that down into... Uh, 22 long rifle which i can purchase off the shelf yesterday i purchased 7,000 rounds and um, so i've pulled up my stock level a little bit but the reality is those will all be gone before the end of the year because we we shoot a lot um and um i enjoy the process of shooting and uh yeah so why not make it a little bit cheaper um i've done a little trigger job on the 455 because the factory trigger is not great and when I say I've done a trigger job, my gunsmith does that, I don't fizzle with the firing mechanism, mechanisms of the rifles myself, cause I just don't know what the hell I'm doing. I um I often tell people like, I actually know very little about shooting. I just know how to do it, but it doesn't always mean you can explain to somebody how to do something. Um, But I feel like that the internet has such wonderful resources and the few things I feel like I can explain, I I try and do as best job as I can to do those.
0: Two things you were talking about, supplementary questions, very good ones, I think. Uh, I must admit, I bought, I think it was the PSR as well, the Atlas Bipod now. When I first bought, I was a little bit skeptical laying out, and I think I got it cheap because doing the podcast, I knew a few people, but I still paid about $405 Australian for it. And anyway, when it turned up, I looked at this thing and I thought, is this a joke or what? And then I put it on my uh, rifle and I was like, I was sold, man. I was like, this thing it's legit. is worth every cent. Like I had, I think... I'm not sure if you can get them over there. I had a, a Vanguard bipod. I think, I'm think. i not sure if you've got the... the oh, uh, yeah, those are terrible. Yeah, and I had the little shoe on the front, like a quick shoe, and I, you, you get two quick shoes with every bipod, and I thought this thing was okay, but I noticed when I've got like a heavy Ticker T3X Varmint with a big scope 20 MOA rail, it was just on that borderline of weight. And then when I got the, the Atlas, I was like, this thing's not any better than this other thing. How is this going to hold this heavy rifle? Man, fan... Fantastic.
1: Yeah, it's amazing. I'm really fortunate that I'm I'm sponsored by BT Industries, which manufacture the Atlas bipods. And it's a wonderful product. I actually run mine on an ARCA Swiss rail underneath my chassis. So I can without taking the bipod off, I can slide the bipod back and forth um to get myself into a better shooting position. Let's say I'm shooting over a rock or a barrel or a log or whatever the case may be um just it makes it even more versatile than it already is
0: second uh, that's just going on from that too. Second supplementary question to that now we can actually have muzzle brakes here in australia which is quite surprising with our terrible government but anyway uh, when you're shooting national rifle league precision shooting do you get a mixture of people using uh, suppressors allowed do they mix it up between brakes and suppressors because i'm a big fan of the apa uh, little bastard i've got a couple of those which i really like but what normally happens over there
1: Actually, to dovetail into an earlier question, is if there's money left over in that two to three thousand budget, is to get some sort of muzzle device. Now, personally, I shoot a break all the time. I shoot the MDT Elite break. I also actually had the APA break in the past. I've recently switched over to the MDT break just because they sponsor me, so I get it for free. Why not? And it works wonderful. Yeah, so get a muzzle device. Now, suppressors are completely legal to use in our competitions. And most people will love you if you shoot a suppressor because then they don't have to deal with the, the muzzle blast caused by a muzzle brake. You know, because it's obviously it's it's way more worse for people standing next to you or behind you when you're shooting a muzzle brake in terms of how loud it is. But personally, myself, I like the muzzle brake way better than a, than a suppressor. And the big reason for that is I feel like my... Well, I don't feel like I know my rifle settles down much faster after the shot because it's more like it's a it's a snap and it's done and the recoil's over and you can see where your where your shot lands and that is a massive massive thing in this sport. You need to see where that bullet is going and and most of the time I can actually see my my own vapor trail in my scope, um. So that even if you miss and you don't see splash, you can see where that bullet has flown. And I feel like when you shoot a suppressor, I do own a suppressor. I feel like it's more of a push, you know, instead of like a a, a snap on your shoulder, it's more like it pushes you off the target a little bit more. Um, Both can work, competitors shoot both all the time. I just like the way I shoot with a break. I just feel like I can, my follow up shots are faster. I can see my bullet a little bit better. And uh, it's a more enjoyable experience for me, not necessarily the people shooting next to me, but I'm not there for them, I'm there for me. (laughs) so i'm a little bit selfish in that regard
0: last two questions man any new rifle purchases planned over the next say 12 months what have you got what are you building any hunting rifles you think you're going to purchase based on the video that i saw of the kudu hunt? i don't think you'll be taking the uh, big 6.5 again so what have you got planned
1: so i'm i'm busy working on a new experimental caliber which i don't know if you're familiar with the 6.5 prc
0: yes i am yes
1: So we've used the 6.5 PRC as a parent case, necked it down to 6mm, played with the shoulders a little bit, and we're calling it the 6 Orpen. I'm going to shoot the 110 A-tips, the new bullets from Hornady in that, and we should be able to get those guys up to some pretty ridiculous speeds with this caliber. So I'm super excited for that, and I'm building that rifle for unknown distance shoots, which is quite a big thing here in South Africa where – yeah, It's max distance out to about 400 meters, and you basically can just then hold sort of high or low, depending on where you zero. So that's what I've built that for. I'm really excited. It's obviously going to destroy barrels because um, <laughs> it'll be super quick. <laughs> yeah. Then I've built a 7mm uh, off of 300 Winmac case, which should be very interesting. And that's more than likely going to be my long-range sort of not ELR, but long-range gun. Also, heavy barrels are not practical for hunting wise. I'm really tempted to build a 28 Nozzler in a carbon fiber stock with a carbon fiber barrel. And I think that's more than likely going to be my next build I'm going to do. I'm also busy replacing my 6.5 Creed match rifle with the 6 Dasher. Um, I'm just waiting on my new Defiance actions to finish the uh, the nitrite treatment. And I think that's going to be a little bit, a little fun project now the reason i'm going six mil for my match rifle is to sort of deal with a little bit less recoil and um yeah you know they say it changes as good as a holiday i've been shooting this rifle now for almost three years now so i think it's about time to change things up in in that regard but i'm super pumped for a lighter hunting rifle i'm gonna have to make work of that in the next couple of weeks to get that ball rolling because that's probably realistically to have a custom rifle bolt here takes about a year
0: Wow, that's crazy! And yeah. one thing you were mentioning too, which I find interesting, probably this is where we're going to differ on barrels South Africa compared to Australia. A barrel is not a controlled item coming into the country, so basically I can just go to the wow. sh- go to the shop or the the website and say, "Hey, uh, I want that you know barrel blank. Send me that. Here's the cash online, and I'll just send it straight to your house." The only thing that's sort of considered the firearm per se is the actual action. You were talking about if you do get them rebarreled, you said you had issues with the government trying to do some funny business so what's the process now Mm. if you say well that 6.5 barrel in like three to four months is going to be screwed and i need to get a new one what's the process over in south africa now
1: that really interesting that you guys are doing it that way which is the logical way to do it because the barrel is not part of it's part of the firearm but that's not without the action you can't do anything right so in most cases the action has a number on and the action is the license part in most countries now here, the barrel is actually licensed too, so it's our our police basically said, listen, nowhere in the firearm manual does it say you need to replace the barrel because people never used to shoot out barrels, right? A hunter would never shoot out a barrel on his gun in a lifetime. So uh, it, then they basically said the manual doesn't say you have to rebarrel your rifle, therefore we're declaring rebarreling of rifles illegal. So uh, with the new precision rifle shooting, we're obviously shooting way more than we used to. So basically, those people fighting for our gun rights, we won that case pretty quickly, and now we can rebarrel again. Having said that, it's quite a process. You have to apply. Um, first of all, to find a nice barrel in South Africa is difficult because of stock levels. So let's assume you've already got a barrel blank that a gunsmith can do for you. He needs to apply for that build, and that process can take a few months. Uh, and then he actually needs to do the work for you. And only after he's done the work for you can you actually have the rebarreling done. So that can take a while. Now, for myself, I again, this is all about mindset, I think, and and I approach it in a quite simple way. Whereas, my barrel is as much as a consumable as the tires are on my car. I don't wait until the wires are coming out of my tires before I think about replacing them. Like I do that in advance. So if I know I shoot on average five, six thousand rounds a year uh, on my match rifle. I know that I always need to have a spare barrel ready to go that's been approved to, to do a, a a rebarreling on. So that's basically all I do. I work with a company called Bullet Central Africa, and they're really good with helping me getting my barrels sorted. And uh, yeah, they've also got a, a sister or a parent company in America and uh, we can actually import barrels that have already been cut into South Africa. So it's a licensed barrel as a new firearm, and then we just do the swap.
0: Well, at least common sense prevailed that that would have ruined the whole sport if they got away with that and said you can't rebarrel a rifle. That would have been crazy.
1: Yeah, exactly. That would have been crazy. Now, I know a bunch of people are – we have neighboring countries with uh, not as strict barrel laws. It's basically the same thing as you guys, and um, I have heard of people just – hopping over the border and swapping out their barrel and coming back. Essentially, because the barrel doesn't have a serial number on, nobody's going to be the wiser. Now, what I don't like about that is the government's basically forcing people to do illegal stuff, even though there's nothing, you know. By changing the barrel, if you're going to assassinate somebody, it doesn't matter which barrel you're going to use, right? You're going to do something stupid regardless because you're an idiot. So why force people to do illegal stuff by going to a neighboring country and changing your barrel? It absolutely makes no sense to me. And that's where I have a little bit of a struggle with our government. Instead of making it really difficult and forcing people to do illegal stuff, just make the process easier. License your action, for example, and let us switch out our barrels. Like, uh, yeah, it it shouldn't be as hard as it is. So that's a little bit of a gripe we have here. And that scares some people off getting into our sport because we have a higher round count. Now, again, with the National Rifle League, that is something we've addressed. By reducing the round count on our competitions from 120 rounds a day, to maybe something a bit more manageable, like 60 rounds a day. And you can have just as much fun shooting 60 rounds a day as 120 rounds. Um, and then your barrel will effectively last twice as long if you shoot the National Rifle League versus whatever other options you, you do have available. And the guys have loved us for doing that. There's one negative to doing that is, and that is if you have a bad stage and you drop four or five points on one stage, it's really difficult to catch up to the leaders because you don't – that you because, you know – He's, he's probably not going to drop that many shots over the rest of the match. So that's something we need to sort of work on a little bit in that regard.
0: It's so surprising that Australia actually got one thing right with barrels, that it's not a sort of controlled item and you have to spend ages trying to get one. And of all the things, they actually <laughs> did get one thing right. So Yeah.
1: And honestly, I would rather have your suppressor issue and be able to swap my barrels than not being able to swap my barrels. But I, I can buy a suppressor. Like, I would, I would flip that. The other, Do you guys want to trade?
0: Yeah, I mean, if we hey, if we sat down a, a, around a beer one day or, or a drink and we had a chat about it, I'd probably just blow your mind with all the stuff that you like. W- I'd tell you that happens in this country. That, but the thing is, even in Australia, people are still willing to jump through, which is good. Still willing to jump through those hoops, doing absolutely whatever they need to do to to get into the shooting sports. It's not it's not deterring people, which is is fantastic. And people are willing to jump through the hoops to get it done. So.
1: Yeah, that's awesome, man. I I just think like if you can't change it, just embrace it. Because complaining about it's not going to make any difference,
0: mate. Tell us about okay. Finishing off, mate. Last question, pretty much. Um, where do people find you if they want to jump on Patreon and all those good things to support you? They want to find out about yourself on social media. Where do they go? How do they find the channel all the YouTube stuff? Tell me all that.
1: Okay, perfect. So first of all, I I do most of. I'm kind of focused on YouTube. I do have a Facebook page, which I believe you you're going to link in your thing. Uh, My YouTube, you can just search for Pete Skeet, P-I-E-T, second word, S-K-I-E-T, Pete Skeet. That basically translates to Peter, which is me, and Skeet is shooting in Afrikaans. So Pete Shoots, that's basically the name of my channel in Afrikaans. And... um, that, any video will have all the links to all of my different social media. You can search the same thing, PeteSkid6.5 on Instagram. You'll find me there. And I try and put out as much content as possible. My Patreon will also be linked underneath all my YouTube videos or in my Instagram bio.
0: Perfect. And I did notice, and I wanted to bring it up too, probably a bit of a side note too. I want to tell you, because I watched your video about, keep the name that you've got, man. I know there was an issue, maybe somewhere back, the name name Pete Skeet was associated with some retard back in the day that, you know, had some problems (laughs) or was part of some bullshit or whatever it was, and someone was getting upset about your name and didn't want to be sort of associated with the name, which... As everyone knows, that's got common sense. That's not what you were talking about. It means Pete shoots. Like, I'm Australian and I understand that. What's going on with our South Africans over there, Pete?
1: Yeah, I I guess that's like people are threatened by what I'm doing, by providing content. And I'm sort of a – I wouldn't say I'm very confident in my ability to shoot and I also promote – like safe shooting. And I'm trying to show that shooting is awesome. And for somebody to go out of their way to try and keep me from shooting their competitions, because my name of my YouTube channel is similar to that of a sort of idiot that lived 20 years ago and uh, that made some political noise is absolutely ridiculous. And that shows you like sort of why I distance myself from that organization. Cause I honestly, Jason, I believe in, in positive vibes only. And if you're not adding to my life or adding to my experience, I don't want it, any part of what you're doing. And um, I think that's the way we should live our lives, and not find nitty-gritty things to try and penalise somebody that's actually just trying to to help the sport. So yeah, I've just distanced myself from that um, certain three-letter organisation, and uh, it's it's been one of the best things I've done because I haven't been able, I haven't had to deal with their shit for some time now. And uh, yeah, I guess a current retard found the the link to an old retard, so yeah, it's
0: fitting. <laughs> Absolutely, mate. Well, first off, I just want to say thank you. We've literally probably one of the one of the only shows actually other than our normal straight shooting where I've actually interviewed a guest and it's going just upwards of two hours, man. We've just literally cracked the two hours just as we stopped talking. So, mate, first off, I want to thank wow. you for what you're doing. I want to thank you for um, accepting my gracious uh, invitation to have you on my show, to have a chat about, I guess, not just you know precision shooting, but what's happening in South Africa. I love to hear about different cultures. I love to hear about uh, what's happening in other countries, even though we've got different animals to shoot. We've got different types of shooting, pistols, rifles, shotguns, you name it, different types of you know precision shooting. It's all fantastic, and I want to thank you for coming on my show. So, guys, check him out uh pete skeet on youtube pete thanks for your time i really appreciate it and um if you're in australia man let me know we can come here we can shoot some guns we can have fun uh it might be a little bit difficult to get your permit but um, we'll find out what we can come up with so thanks again for coming on the show i do appreciate it
1: awesome jason thank you very much for having me and same thing goes on my side ever this side of the water free beer on me and i can hook you up with an awesome hunting experience with some of the best out through. thanks for having me it's been it's been a blast
0: You've been listening to an episode of the Australian Hunting Podcast. I hope you enjoyed it. See you next time.